This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. Award-winning journalist Paula Slier is the Middle East Bureau Chief for Russia Today and the founder and CEO of NewsHound Media International. As a war correspondent, she finds herself at the front lines of Syria, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Egypt, Gaza, Israel, and of course the Palestinian territories. She has twice been recognized by Russian President Vladimir Putin for her colossal input into the development of Russian journalism and her professionalism in covering issues of paramount importance. Welcome. Thank you so much Paula. for having me. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to see you. You are so loved in this country, Paula. Uh, you trust are. me, the feelings are completely reciprocal. <laughs> it's lovely to see you too, and also to meet up with people in the community is always special. Paula, what people are talking about at the moment is the new Trump peace deal. And um, there's been some very critical analysis coming from the left. People saying... That the deal actually doesn't provide any opportunity for talking. It basically endorsed Israel, gave the Palestinians absolutely no hope, no incentive to talk, and is leaving people pretty much in this current affairs. Yes. Look, it's a difficult thing. I had an interview with the Palestinian Prime Minister a couple of weeks ago, and this was before the the deal was unveiled. But the Palestinians, even before the deal became public, already had indications and leaks of what was entailed. And even if they hadn't, the most important part of the whole discussion is the fact that they weren't privy or weren't part of those negotiations. You know, it takes two to tango. And what was alarmingly clear when Trump announced the plan is standing next to him was Netanyahu, and there was nobody either in the office or next to him representing the Palestinian side. So what kind of negotiations happened there? The Palestinians are against it. They were against it from the start. They do not see the United States as a neutral mediator, and they feel that the plan just really puts what Israel wants on the table. In that respect, it's quite interesting because that is accurate. So we can see what Israel is prepared to give up and not prepared to give up. It's prepared to give up 30% of the West Bank. It's not prepared to give up 70%. Some of the very small settlements will have to move out of the way. It's not prepared to divide Jerusalem. It wants to have have a future Palestinian capital in a suburb of East Jerusalem, possibly on the outskirts, so for example, Abu Dis. And I also went to Abu Dis to talk to people. It's a very small village. It's the best way to explain it. So they had a parliament building that was erected there and built after the Oslo peace process, but when all of that kind of fell apart... Abu Dis stayed with this empty building. So it's also not a new proposal, and I think that's an important point to make, is that nothing really is that new. There is a lot of negativity from the Palestinian side. Having said that, you need to put it into the broader framework of Palestinians and Israelis haven't been talking to each other already for years. Mahmoud Abbas responds and says, I'm cutting off all ties with Israel. But there hasn't been any negotiations. The question is whether or not he'll cut off security ties. And it would be against his interests as well as against Israel's interests if there's no security cooperation between his Palestinian authority and the Israeli army in the West Bank. Because without that cooperation, Hamas could come to the fore in the West Bank. So Abbas really has his hands tied. The one thing, and I'm not saying that I necessarily endorse this plan, I completely understand all the criticisms, some of which I've just outlined. But the one thing worth noting is that it is a little bit thinking out of the box in the sense that the peace process was not going forward. It's not that we're any worse off now than we were before. I get what the Palestinians are saying. You cannot unilaterally impose something on us. But there is a $50 billion incentive that's coming forward from the Americans that the Palestinians say you can't buy us. But it's a way for Trump to potentially think out of the box, even though I say a lot of the proposals are not new. But he's saying, look, let's just start somewhere and move forward on something. 
again, the feeling in the region, particularly amongst the Arab countries who are divided, which is also interesting because that means that this might be an opportunity for Israel actually to take advantage of particularly Sunni countries that are, that are prepared to help endorse and finance this plan. But the sense is, how do you get the Palestinians round to your side? Because the anger on the Palestinian street is so strong. Well, um, yes, that's exactly it. What is the next step? It's hard to say because you need to always separate rhetoric from reality. And whenever I interview people, I'm always wary and conscious that they're talking to me as a journalist, not necessarily what they think. So whenever I gauge the mood on the Palestinian street, and I was in Ramallah just a week ago, people will tell you that there's no way they're going to endorse this. But should we, if I... If you invite me again and I'm here in a month's time and we've suddenly heard a statement that they're willing to endorse it in part, I wouldn't be completely surprised. The problem for the Palestinians is how do you accept a plan that you've so vocally gone against and then change your mind? Not necessarily. I don't think we can have a situation that they're going to accept it all, but they might potentially accept some of it. Look, it's also Israeli elections. You've got to have a, another big context. You know, we've had Israeli elections. We're going to have Israeli elections. You do quite often Trump, Trump <laughs> is standing um, at the end of the year. So all of it's happening in the context of wider political concerns as well. You, you mentioned something that really is important, and um, a recent trip to Israel drove this home to me, in that what the rhetoric and the reality on the ground is so different. And I know that there are people working together, for example, on water projects between the Palestinian territories and Israel. And I just wonder what kind of impact the announcement of this deal has on ordinary Palestinians and Israelis. I think I think the the impact is very much the rhetoric we see. I think firstly it's a 180 page document that most people are not going to read no. or have not read. So people take the the tidbits that they get from the news. So the average Palestinian hears that this is a deal that's being imposed on them that it's it's a deal that was negotiated with only the Israelis, the Palestinians weren't represented, and that the Americans want to give them money. So, so naturally the average Palestinian is going to say, hang on, I'm not prepared to be bought, and every Palestinian that I've spoken to is against the deal. The Israeli society is more divided, not saying that it's divided 50-50, but it's divided in the sense that those who support Netanyahu, who feel that this is a great opportunity, and you know, everyone keeps repeating what Abba Eben, who was a former foreign minister, said that the Palestinians always take, miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, and there is a sense amongst particularly right-wing, and I would say even moderate Israelis, that this is not going to be embraced by the Palestinian side, and they are going to, in quote, miss an opportunity. And then left-wing, left-wing Israelis would be more on the Palestinian side, and they would say, again, you cannot unilaterally impose something on people. So you will have that kind of division that is happening there on the ground. There is also an interesting question that immediately after the deal was unveiled, there was this question about annexation. And Netanyahu said at the time that, Come that Sunday, the deal was unveiled during the week. That Sunday, which has already passed, he was going to put it forward to the Knesset that they actually vote, which would have passed, to unilaterally annex the 70% of the territories that the deal posed. And there was a bit of backtracking from the Americans because they were like, hang on a sec, it's bad enough the reaction that we have from the Palestinian street and those Arab countries who don't support the deal to now go forward and actually annex the territories that we talk about might just be pushing things a little bit too far. And there was this behind-the-scenes happening and reports between Jared Kushner and the Israelis and pressure being applied on the one and the other. But that is something that we'll have to keep watching. It's not just what happens to the deal, but whether or not Netanyahu plans to implement parts of it, for example, annexing part of the West Bank Territory without the, the endorsement and the, the condoning by the Palestinian side. So before we leave the 
deal, there's one other group that are feeling particularly grumpy about it as well. And those are Arab Israelis who seem to be like, you know, okay, bye, thanks very much. It's lovely having had you in Israel, but now you have to go. And I just wonder how, to what extent they're feeling insecure and possibly angry with Israel. It's interesting that you ask me that because it's exactly a story that I was working on. The Arab-Israeli sentiment started coming more to the fore. I'm not saying this is a new phenomenon at all, but do you remember there was that um, Democracy Act or citizenship when Arabic then became a second language and not a first mm, language? Mm, I forget the exact mm, terminology. Yes. But that became a huge issue, and a lot of Arab-Israelis were saying we really feel like we, we've always felt many will tell you, second-class citizens, and now we feel like we're really being <laughs> legalized, that that's our status. I'm not sure that they necessarily feel surprised by any of this. There's not a sense that what's happened with the Americans is out of the blue. It's part of a process, and a lot of people do put it into the bit- bigger political framework of Trump running for re-election in, in November, and he does need more votes amongst his angelical base, and this talks to them. So my short answer to you is that naturally Arab Israelis won't welcome this, but they're not going to necessarily be surprised or any more infuriated because we've already had a path that has led us to this point in which they've had all those emotions being expressed. Russia. 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 <laughs> da, 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 da. I'm hearing the drum roll. Russia. It really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. But what does Russia think? Officially, Russia's against it. Officially, Russia is one of those countries who's spoken out that you cannot unilaterally impose a solution on the two sides. Russia's official position is we support a two-state solution with East Jerusalem as the capital for the Palestinians. As an aside, I'm not saying this. I'm just posing this as a question to you and as a question to the listeners. Any kind, is it possible that any kind of flare-up or any kind of tension in the Middle East, whether it's between the Palestinians and the Israelis or other countries, is it possible that that could be to Russia's benefit? Hmm. And I put that out as a question there because don't forget, Russia still... I don't know what people think, if they think that the Russians and Trump are in bed together, but they're not. There is still a lot of conflict between the Russians and the Americans. So any kind of tension between Trump and the Palestinians, any kind of tension between Trump and the Arab world, is not necessarily something that the Russians are not going to welcome. Do you understand where I'm going with this thinking? Mm. So officially they're against it. Russia has offered herself, and this is something already a few years in the making, saying we can be a mediator. And when I talk to Palestinians, they say that they would prefer Russia because they see Russia as being a more fair mediator than the Americans have proven to be. When I pose the exact same question to Israelis, they're very cautious of the Russians, and they would much rather have the Americans. But again, we, you know, we, we, we can be talking about the Russian reaction. We can be talking about the Trump's deal of the century. The reality on the ground is that Israelis and Palestinians are not talking to each other and nothing is moving forward. There was some discussion about whether or not this Trump, that this Trump deal could lead to more violence and potentially a third intifada. That would be the concern. The concern would be not that the deal doesn't work, but that the deal inflames tensions. And Shreese, it is important to mention that the deal itself talks about not being the ultimate deal in the sense that it just was supposed to be a starting point to bring Israelis and Palestinians together and from here let's talk and map out and make changes and, and agreements and consensuses or whatever. But I don't think that's necessarily going to happen, which is a pity, because whether you'd like the deal or not, I think most people would feel that if you want something to happen positively between Israelis and Palestinians, they have to come back to the negotiating table in the first place. Ultimately, they have to be the ones to negotiate it, but clearly they need help. Clearly they're not going to do it by themselves. And I think the feeling, well, not, I wouldn't know, but there's an election coming up, as there always is in Israel nowadays, and there's does seem to be is I mean Mahmoud Abbas is very old now. Is there a sense of it's time now for new leadership to take over, and will that provide a glimmer of hope? 
And is that question directed towards the Palestinians? Do they feel that, do, are you asking me if they feel they need a new leader or if the Israelis or both? Both. Look, the Israelis have never been great fans of Mahmoud Abbas. So Netanyahu has repeatedly said that he feels there's no one to negotiate with on the Palestinian side, which, which is a bit of a slap in the face mm. because you do have a mm. Palestinian leader there. The interesting part that people might not be so aware of is whenever I'm in the Palestinian area, so for example in Ramallah, and you talk to youngsters, they hate Abbas. They feel that all the money, just a kind of follow on from what happened in the time of Arafat, all the money that the international community gave never reached the average person on the street and was just put into the coffers of the leadership. Abbas does not have legitimacy amongst his own people. And in that respect, Netanyahu's right. I wouldn't say that there's no one to negotiate with, but I would say it is questionable how much support and how much backing Abbas has. And of course, you have this rivalry between Abbas's Fatah faction and Hamas in Gaza. And you have a situation in Gaza that's completely deteriorating all the time. The humanitarian situation there continues to go down and Mm. down and down. So there's talk all the time of having new elections, and we're supposed to be having new Palestinian elections, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. But a big question mark as to whether or not that happens. And actually, I mentioned to you at the start of the interview that I was recently interviewing the Palestinian prime minister. I asked him about the elections in Gaza, and I said to him, what happens if you hold elections in Gaza, which is what they're pledging to do, and Hamas wins again? Will you recognize that as a democratic solution? And he said, yes. But between you and me and everybody who's listening, that was the whole problem, was that um, Fatah, Abbas's Fatah party doesn't want Hamas to win again. So it's that question of let's hold democracy, but what happens if the democracy gives us an organization that we don't want to win? So the, the latest news is that there's supposed to be elections happening that will happen in Gaza and in the West Bank. I don't know who will stand. There are popular figures to stand against Abbas, but the indications are still that Abbas, despite, I think he's 90 even, despite his old age, despite his poor health, I think he plans to stand again, and he's already an unpopular figure. Sure. Intractable. I, I mean, I'd like to have left this interview on a, you know, a hope, <laughs> but we, 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 we don't have enough time for that, Porter. But thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Sharing your insight, which is, uh, I know, right at the I'm always happy to be here. I don't know if I meant I'm always happy. (laughs) (laughs) Good, then I look forward to chatting to you the next time you So then we can end on a positive note. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) That was Paula Slear. Thank you so much, Paula Slear, for coming in.